welcome to Double Features, where each episode we serve up a twisted pairing of two horror films, some obvious and familiar, some less so. Your hosts are two cultural critics with largely irrelevant professional interests, but what we lack in film schooling, we make up for in a willingness to share our opinions. My name is Paul, and I am joined by Bren. Say hi, Bren. Hi, Paul. What a great day to record this podcast. It's been sort of dark and stormy all day. Lots of thunder, lightning. So perfect for this episode, which in which we're pairing two early 2000s films, one Japanese and one Australian, that both deal with feeling isolated in a world of technology and also with the concept of death. Um, so the films are Pulse, or otherwise known as Cairo, uh, and Lake Mungo. Mm-hmm. So in Pulse from 2001, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa's techno-horror gem follows the interlocking plot lines of plant store employee Michi, played by Kamiko uh, Aso, and Ryazaki, uh, played by Haruhiko Kato, as they contend with the fallout of a strange web browser which displays haunting images and seems to be leaking ghosts into the world. Um, And we pair it with Lake Mungo, which is a 2008 mock documentary by Australian writer-director Joel Anderson, sadly his only film, uh, following the family of recently deceased Alice Palmer, played by Tali Zucker, as they experience some possibly supernatural occurrences after setting up cameras in their home. Uh, So the way we're going to structure this podcast is we're going to start with a spoiler-free discussion, and then partway through the show, we will announce a spoiler-rich half of the episode and that begins with our pitch or our take or our argument about why these two films belong together indeed and it's i mean it feels like a no-brainer to me that they belong together (laughs) in this case but bren and i would do our best to overcomplicate what is in many ways (laughs) a a really intuitive pairing i think well is it is it an intuitive pairing because like at first they they both sure they're both about like ghosts right um, but they both like one of them is about the ghost of a very very specific person um, in that in that being Alice, and then mm-hmm. the other one seems to just be about ghosts like as a as a concept or like the <laughs> afterlife or or death or just like things that happen to you due to supernatural beings in general. I don't know. What's your impression there? Okay, so if if we want to enter from the ghost angle, sure, that that's <laughs> that that is one way in which they're an intuitive pairing, and I would. Uh, say to kind of pick up on where you're going there I think that yeah Lake Mungo is less confused about what ghosts are than Pulse appears to be (laughs) (laughs) Pulse really really wants to ask lots of questions about what ghosts might be uh, but doesn't really doesn't really get us any further Uh, we we kind of leave it a little bit more confused than maybe we were to begin with but Lake Mungo knows what not only does it know what ghosts are it knows what its ghosts are um, right, and it is to a very technical level. Yeah, and that's the, and that's I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that to me is really the intuitive thing here. I mean, if we're going to be crass again, um, there's a level. So we've got the kind of mock documentary format. So there's a level at which it's kind of dealing with haunted media, right? Mm-hmm. And then in Pulse, um, there's a haunting that's happening in the internet or through the right. internet or because of the internet. So that's, that's to me where it seems like at least at a surface level, they, they match up really well. Sure. But I guess like, okay. So for our listeners who have not had the pleasure of seeing Mung- Lake Mungo, um, it's one of the best horror films I've ever seen. Uh, the, no matter, no matter how many times I see it, it still gets 
chills from me to mm-hmm. the point where like I want to look away from the screen. Um, it's really intense, and it's also like deeply, deeply sad. Um, so sad in a in a way that's like so emotionally affecting, and it's like beautifully crafted. It's short. How long? It's like an hour and a half. It's un- I think it's like one twenty seven. It's under an hour. And, and a half. Incredible, incredible, it's brutally and it just efficient, so dense. much. Yeah. Yeah, brutally efficient is definitely a good way to say it. So the way that it is set up is like um, a documentary style where the actors are being interviewed, um, like sort of talking head style. They're like being interviewed about their experiences um, after the death of Alice. So the characters are the mother, the father, and Alice's brother. Um, And they like begin to see Alice's ghost in images and in video. Mm and so those, so like the the way that the film is set up is like interspersing interviews with the people with the footage that the footage and the images that they're talking about, um, and so that sort of frame sets up this like I don't want to say realism, but I I want to say sort of this effect like really deeply affecting sense of of loss that the actors just convey so with such clarity. Um, right. And the way right. that like it's so artificial that the artifice sort of falls away to me because like it's like they're they're being interviewed by somebody, a documentary crew supposedly that's like creating this thing, but it allows them to sort of break out of this acting mode, which is one of the things about Pulse. If you haven't seen Pulse, <laughs> it's a great movie. Unlike Lake Mungo, it is very long, perhaps needlessly so, yeah, um, and the acting yeah. is 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 rough. Well, it did, how would you describe it? There are some. I mean, there's there's a one the um, actress who plays the incredibly youthful professor <laughs> is. Um, I think she's like a genuine star. She went on to do like Last Samurai yeah. and stuff. So there's some star power there. Um, but generally, there's a lot of very young actors who 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 aren't being directed perhaps to to restrain themselves or to rein it in and and the script can be a little creaky at times um but as Bren says in Lake Mungo there's this remarkable restraint that I think both mm. in its editing and its running time and in the performances and I, I do think that this isn't it's restraint isn't necessarily what we associate with kind of found footage and with uh, mock documentary but in this case the format really allows the actors to just get these kind of minutely observed understated performances which as Brent says contributes to this really overwhelming sense of sadness and to explain it's gorgeous yeah to explain all the ways in which this film is sad and to really understand that you'll have to stay till after uh the spoiler disclaimer because it just gets it just gets more sad um, but it is, I think, I mean, just, just to go back to what you said, Bren, I mean, it's, it was really, it was interesting watching these both together. It was my second time watching Lake Mungo, like my fourth time watching Pulse. And I think the first thing I texted you after watching Lake Mungo was how, how sad it was. It was, yeah. it was scarier a second time to me and it was mm-hmm. sadder a second time. Yeah. This was the third time I had seen Lake Mungo and I was like, you know, knowing what was coming, there is like, Mm -hmm. uh, Lake Mungo is one of those films where I would really, really, really encourage you to watch it before having it spoiled because there is, there are some things that happen in the middle of it that like, if you know about them, it can really, really change your viewing experience. Um, But for me, you know, knowing what was coming didn't make it less affecting. Um, And it, it really, you know... It changed my viewing experience in a way that, like, um, 
it made me, you know, lean closer to the screen to try to see things that I mm. knew, you know, I should be looking for. It's like with any film that's hit you really, really emotionally. I mean, there are some films that um, once I've seen them the first time, if I go back and see them in the cinema a second time, just like the opening bars of music can be enough to mm. just get me back in that vibe, like get me back in that zone and make me want to be extra attentive to what the film's doing and why I'm feeling this way. Uh, and I, I think that on an emotional level and on kind of like uh, the level of the intellectual exercise, Lake Mungo kind of triggers and encourages that kind of behavior uh, in a rewatch. So my experience rewatching Pulse was like similar a little bit, not in the sense of like twists or something, like not no- like knowing what kind of plot developments were going to happen, but more in, t- in in the sense of like knowing... I don't know. There's a lot of, like you said about the script, like there's a couple of moments where it just sort of breaks open and then tells you things very, very directly, especially about like loss, sadness, loneliness, depression, like those kinds of things. Uh And knowing that the script was going to do that caused me to look at the frames um, and the, the like, yeah, just like the framing, the staging of each scene in a really particular way about like how close or far apart the people are to mm-hmm. each other. I also have to give like massive props to this YouTube channel, um, Nippon Cinema, Cinema Nippon or something. Um, and they have this really like lovely reading of this film that has a lot to do with um, one visual trick that it has, um, which is partway through like this grad student shows this other character, this oh, like simulation. Yeah, the program. And it's like dots that are floating around on the screen, getting close to each other and getting further away from each other. And like knowing about that caused me to watch the movie with an eye to how close physically the characters were to each other and like how far apart they were and what it meant to become, you know, physically closer in space to another character. So I want to ask you what you found out because I was not walking. I, I feel like I did my homework badly, Brent, because I was not wa- watching with that <laughs> level of uh, kind of thematic attentiveness, thematic visual attent- attentiveness. But just the, the the episode you're talking about when this program is introduced, the line mm-hmm. is uh, two dots get closer together, they die. But if they get too far apart, they're drawn together. And then right. uh, the character says it's a visual model of our world. Yeah. And so, okay, so um, this is not a spoiler, but one of the structuring ideas of Pulse is this idea of the Forbidden Room, um, Mm -hmm. which is, oh my gosh, such a visually um, impactful horror trope. It is so, it's so simple. It's just like you see a door that is blocked off by red tape. And then that signals the forbidden room that characters are really drawn into. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, scary things happen in there and uh, leave it at that. But basically what I learned from thankfully watching this amazing YouTube video and also paying close attention to how physically close characters were to each other is that that room sort of creates a, a, a barrier emotionally right, between characters who enter and characters who do not enter. But physically, it draws characters together. So whenever whenever someone is going into the Forbidden Room, another character somewhere is desperately looking for them. Or um, mm. when they... If, if and when they come out of the Forbidden Room, they need to be, phys- like, other characters find this need to be physically close to them, to comfort them, to take care of them, to be with them. And then there is um, some spoilery insights that I have developed that I would like to share later. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I guess I was, 
I was also on the lookout for the ways in which, because I mean, the the whole thing about you get too close together um, and that's bad, but you get too far apart and you're drawn back together seemed to mm-hmm. me just to be, you know, reading it on a very surface level. Just, you know, that's the, the internet world, the social media world, sure. right? We can't get far apart, but we also can't get together in a way that's healthy, whatever. Um, but I, I, I hadn't really thought of the forbidden, and this seems totally right now that you say it, and props again to this YouTuber, uh, the, the idea that the forbidden room somehow actuates that or accentuates that movement, that's basically what you're, you're saying, right? Totally. And then you can also see like when characters are having these big philosophical discussions about what it means to be dead or what the afterlife is like, you can sort of see them moving farther apart or closer together like as, as a technique of film. Like the camera shows them um, in like not in shot reverse shot, but in the same in the same shot or um, when one of them doesn't understand they're physically far apart. They're sitting on opposite sides of the table or standing on opposite sides of the room. It's gorgeous. I really, if you haven't seen this movie, dear listener, uh, look for that as you, as you take your first watch. Um, It's pretty fascinating. That makes me think of a moment when the, um, again, I don't want to do too many spoilers, but when the, the, the main male character and the, uh, professor character are together there's one moment when she puts her head on his shoulder and mm-hmm. it is it is followed by a um uh, a separation very very quickly afterward right i don't know if yeah that... totally yeah and i also don't like so this film follows two separate storylines where the characters just the main characters of each storyline just are nowhere near each other. They do not interact. They do not no. speak. They don't even know that the other one exists until a very specific moment um, that also like has me thinking a lot about what it means to be drawn together and whether that takes place in actual space or not. This is also explaining to me, Bren, a little bit why in, the, in this metaphor being kind of acted out on screen in a way that's, you know, representative of life or whatever. At the same time, it means that often the characters are actually not really acting the way humans would act. Um, no. And so it's kind of it's kind of both, like, metaphorically astute, but also in in terms of representing how people actually relate to one another in other ways mm-hmm. it's it's less successful but this kind of this kind of helps me understand why it is it is so strange in in that way so well i think i mean that gives me that brings me back to one of the reasons why these films you know the surface level sort of obvious pairing having to do with the ways that technology and communication technologies in particular bring us closer together or actually bring us further apart Um, I think, you know, one of the reasons we were first discussing having these together is because so much of Pulse is about what happens online and whether, you know, and its script is really explicit about this. It's like these technologies were meant to bring people together to increase human connection. But this poor, I forget if he's like an economic student or like a sociology student or something. I think it was, Um, I think it was business or economics. Yeah. Business. Yeah. So he's like setting up his internet for the first time and it's like you know 2000 2001 or something and he's like i'm ready to connect with other people and then he gets like a ghost um <laughs> and get then to, first he Mundo, gets an error message he gets an error message you should the, the lesson here is like if you get an error message just stop there <laughs> like don't even go any further it's hilarious because it's exactly how we still do it he he reads through all of the like the disclaimer agreements and he's just like <laughs> oh skip that skip that skip that click 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 click. then he yeah. gets this big old error message and he's like oh i guess that's okay 
and then he's <laughs> no in the problem. internet and then there's a ghost and it's like that would yep. happen to me now if i was given a broken program i would get the ghost because I, I would do the same thing. and it really captures like one of these really specific web 1.0 experiences where you're like it's really late at night and um, you're home alone and you're like looking on the internet and you don't, you're not really looking for anything, but you end up like seeing something really freaky or you navigate to a website that you, that like freaks you out or you see something you feel like you were meant to see, like something private, something scary, something whatever mm-hmm. um, that in, you know, that feels like a really, really specific early 2000s feeling. You know? Yeah, and what was also specific to the early 2000s, I mean, arguably, not even arguably, demonstrably, the potential for seeing things you don't want to see has only has, has become magnified infinitely. Wait, really? I don't know if I agree with that. I feel like the way that the internet is set up now is such that you only see what exactly what you want to see, or exactly what the algorithm thinks you want to see. Uh, yeah, but I think that you like if you if you end up seeing something else, it's because you were looking for it. I think you're underestimating the capacity of groups of children or teens to go looking and not to know what they're getting themselves into. You see what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. So I feel like I get what you're saying, but also okay, maybe I should reframe that. There's the potential. There's more of a potential to see anything and everything now. Right. There's more stuff. There's just more. There's just more stuff. It doesn't feel so vast and sort of sort of empty. But you're right, the accidents, the accidents of 1.0, you're right, and they were more truly accidents. I think you're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. And and then that other thing, and then maybe this is because we were children growing up. Um, we were children during growing this, up. During this time, we were children growing up, and we were children growing <laughs> up during this time. Uh, I mean, I was, I guess, like 10 in the year 2000, so, and we had like one computer in my elementary school, and we would like take mm-hmm. turns going online and and it's it's not just like the the kind of random accidents that occurred but it's also the internet felt small enough it smelt like it felt like something that few enough people were doing that one Mm -hmm. of those accidents would become like urban legend really fast like oh my gosh all around the school Right, and that's what's yeah, happening. Yeah, urban legends like, too. oh, have you navigated to like whatever, whatever dot com? And there were so, my God, there were so many of those yeah, like stupid yeah, yeah. websites where it's like, if you look at this, you will never be able to unsee it. And boy, are those images stared into my brain forever. Right, you and know? we don't get we. Don't, it's not like that anymore. But it, when this film was released, it's it's like playing on that fear. It really is, and I think so. Lake Mungo also, just to keep it connected, has a similar. I mean, Lake Mungo is not about the internet, but it has this sort of similar. Um, analog to digital switch mm-hmm. feeling this like anxiety about what it's possible to to film you know or like what what kinds of images are are real and like what it's possible to see um, yeah that feels like incredibly specific to that moment um, a camera phone p- plays like a huge part in the in the film and it's like the very specific kind of camera phone that like it's not only iconic, but also just like this would if everyone in the film had iPhones, this would never have happened. Like none of the way that this this film plays out would have been the way it happened if we had the sort of surveillance technologies that we have now, the sort of tracking technologies, oh, yeah. the sorts of like the surveillance technologies that people put inside their own homes, like the cameras, the motion activated, whatever, like those at the time felt very high tech and mysterious, but also 
digitally frightening, right? So, yeah. like, when you think back to spirit photography as a phenomenon, it was, like, the sort of analog technique of capturing something inexplicable on film, like, physically on film, was something that felt, you know, completely, untouchably true, Mm-hmm. Right? Like, unexplainable. It couldn't be doctored. It, like, had to be true. You see what you see. There's nothing other than the film. And it had to be, like, a technical or physical trick of the camera rather than, like, a post-production sort of whatever. But this switch to digital technology that's sort of happening in this film and the way that people are using, like, you know, images, video footage, etc., has this sort of haziness. Without getting into any spoilers, it has this sort of haziness that feels uncomfortably unclear yeah Um, and we're still at that point where even though this is the new technology the new technology is actually less good at doing the thing it's meant to do than the analog camera was it it renders something less clear as you say and that that was the case i mean that was the case until really recently yeah (laughs) yeah i mean it's still arguably the case in it it, it, i mean with some digital cameras but i mean it was really the case with early um digital cameras just to just you were saying like interesting intellectual stuff brent but just to interject with some trivia which is not uh, on the same level uh it was the nokia 6600 sorry nokia you say over here Uh um or released as the 6620 in the north american market but i think it was uh the 6600 in Australia, and it mm-hmm. is still one of the most popular uh, early smartphones of all time. So there we go. It was so good. I had so many friends that had it. My mom had it. Um, and then I'm also thinking back to like these really, you know, in order to get a good quality digital image, <laughs> my mom had like would dabble in photography and she would get these like really expensive DSLR cameras like really, really early in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it like, she would have to get, it would be so expensive to get a digital image that was anything comparable to film. And, you know, I got a new phone yesterday or two days ago or something. And I was like taking pictures with it. And I was like, this is, you know, and also the fact that people, (laughs) nobody looks at an image that's larger than their phone screen now. So like, that's the quality Mm -hmm. of image that you need. Right. You don't need it. Like if you're just posting on Instagram, you don't need a camera that's any stronger than the one on your phone. Yeah. Really? Unless you want to do, like, actual, like, <laughs> the new phone that I, I'm sure iPhones have had this for a long time, but it has, like, an artificial f-stop, so you can, like, change the depth of field artificial. Like, there's an <laughs> algorithm that senses the depth of field in the image and then, like, changes it artificially, where, you know, which is insane. That's totally insane to me. It is It um, is insane. And it's, that it can do that. And it's... I, I don't know what I think of it emotionally. I guess I'm, I guess, well, here's, here's the, this is what's so interesting about both of these. So this kind of brings me to something that I think is fascinating about both of these films as historical artifacts that deal mm-hmm. with, that deal with all these transitions that Brent's talking about and, and are very interesting to look back on from this crazy point we're at right now. And we're so much further on is, and I was just saying to Brent, I don't even know what to think about that particular algorithm because I don't really know what to think about any of it anymore. I've just kind of given in. Right. But like, <laughs> this is a this is a point in history where right right now we should be more scared of the presence of technology in our life. Like surveillance capitalism has never been uh, stronger or more powerful. Um, our, our our trace that we leave our imprint on the internet uh, has never been uh, more terrifying or more potent. Um, and yet. 
it's almost like when you're just at the cusp of something, you can see it more clearly in all of its existential kind of mm-hmm. terrifyingness. And both of these films are poised on that cusp in a way that means that they can kind of see what's scary and weird about a lot of this stuff in the way that we just kind of don't want to look at anymore because we're in the middle of it now and it's done, right? So they're kind of interesting. Sure. Or you get like boring, you know, the sort of horror movies that come out now, like that one paranormal activity um, sequel that had to do with like video chatting or Unfriended, which I didn't see, but I assume has something to do with social media. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think there's so. like, you know, these kinds of like, I don't know. I mean, there's different... This is why found footage as a genre is, like... Personally, it is my favorite genre of horror because I am just so obsessed with the materiality of Mm. it. Like, the sort of texture of, like, finding a film and watching it is so alluring to me because you're... That's what I... I, That's how I got into horror is because I really like... I liked found footage films and so i would go online and be like bet like searching best found footage films of all time and that's how i found lake mungo <laughs> actually yeah, like a decade ago or whenever i found it um because i was looking you know you would you find footage and then you watch it and that's sort of like the experience of of what being a horror fan is mm-hmm. you know i don't like every time an, a horror film is advertised to me I like it less. I don't that's, know if that's why my experience. I think we said this in episode one. That's why it took me like half a decade to watch it follows. Because <laughs> yeah, everybody kept the, ads on, were... the the algorithms, yeah. the commercials, everything was telling me to watch it, and I was like, "That's garbage. It's going to be garbage." It wasn't some of the best films I've ever seen. But you're absolutely right. Like it feels <laughs> it feels very like special and precious when you've sought it out yourself and you've you've mined kind of like databases because of this one mm-hmm. thing that you really like and really interests you and you want to find more of it. I mean, that was how I that was how I found Pulse. I was yeah. looking for like, and then you showed it to me. It's like yeah. all this word of mouth stuff. Yeah, and um, and we both watched a less good quality version of it, which is did. way scarier than the high quality version I just watched. So, uh, listener, <laughs> we're not telling you to do anything illegal, but if you can get yourself a really crappy version of Pulse, it's gonna yeah, be yeah, one that way hasn't been scary. like digitally remastered or like don't mess with that. Yeah, polished. You don't want that. Whatever. It's it's the way- original experience because this was like. Okay, so before we move to the spoiler section, there are, like, a couple of things that these films have in common. The first one being that neither of them got theatrical releases in the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, so Kurosawa has a really just insanely prolific career in direct-to-video films, especially between, like, 91 and 99. He made, like, like like, multiple films per year he would make like just there's tons and tons of films so they it never got released and then um miramax harvey weinstein's company actually ended up buying pulse the rights to pulse um in with the intent not to release it to u.s audiences because they wanted the rights to make a remake of it and that was what they were going to release so that it wouldn't compete with the japanese cynical and apparently i'm doing my homework for this episode there is a remake in english and it is 
according to IMDb, not great. terrible. Yeah, with but Kristen according Bell, to IMDb, right? Lake Mungo is terrible too. So IMDb is not a trustworthy no. source of information about horror movies. You, I just notice every time I look up a horror movie on IMDb, it has just abysmal ratings, which doesn't make any sense. More horror fans need to rate stuff on IMDb, guys. Go out there. And, People have been a little unkind to Pulse, stars. the original Pulse as well, saying it doesn't make sense. That's hardly the point. Those fools. I mean, it doesn't, but that's <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's hardly the point. Um, yeah. uh, one last thing before mm-hmm. that they also have in common is that both of them are famous in horror circles for very, very specific scenes. One scene each. One scene in each. Well, I, I don't know. I feel like Pulse has like a lot of really scary scenes. But there was this there was like a thread on Twitter a couple of months ago where people are like, what's the scariest like image like still from a horror movie that you've ever seen? And there's, like, this one image from Lake Mungo that you, all you see is, like, two pixels of this, like, really blurry image. And it just, it gets me every time. It really scares me. That It's so scary. That, the, the scene from Lake Mungo this time, and again, it was because I knew, again, no spoilers. Watch it and then watch it again. Because once you can insert <laughs> that scene within a broader context, it just becomes... It makes the whole movie scarier. So it makes the whole movie scarier. It makes the build-up to that scene scarier. It makes that scene scarier. In the case of... I mean, yeah, it really is... It sounds like a, a really uh, basic comparison to be making that both of these films have... Have a re- scary scene. Have a scary scene. <laughs> but, and I know that we're only... What this but is, they're so scary! This is our third episode. Out of everything we've done so far, and I mean, last time, it was it was like body snatches and... And uh, last man <laughs> on earth, which so it's not really they're not very scary. Yeah, they were romps, right? And we was we were saying like first time like horror dabblers. This is an entry point, okay? Mm-hmm. Lake Mungo and these Pulse. feel like deep cuts. If you are a, if you have not been scared in a while, and yeah, if you're very seasoned, you're feeling, jaded. Yeah, you're like, oh, I haven't seen a horror movie that really gave me the heebie-jeebies, that gave me chills, that made me want to look away from the screen. Man, these are the films for you. They are scary as hell. They're also both really unique in the way that they give you um, the scare. I think in the case yeah, of... Yeah, because they're not jump scares. Right, right, right. They, they they really play with the formula. I think Pulse in particular um, mm. does some really interesting things with timing and um, and kind of apprehending the audience. Yeah. Uh, really- uh, to rem- remind me, like, I remember you saying the first time you watched this movie, you were like hiding under the covers or something and you had to like look away from the screen during that scene i was like i I think i I was watching on my laptop Mm -hmm. and i was watching a terrible copy and i and and my my partner was next to me doing something else so i was leaning in with my earphones on so i I don't know i remember i don't know if i was if i remember hiding under the covers i remember though just just hating that i had to be that close to the screen and just just it pushing me to my to my limit. I have never been more terrorized by a single scene, and that it lasts so long. And we will we will get into exactly what happens really soon. I think we're about to get there. I just want to plug uh, another YouTuber, uh, a guy called. It's a YouTube channel called Spikima Movies. And um, once you've seen the film, go and watch his video on it because he unpicks why that film is that scene is so scary and really I think cuts to the heart of it. Um, but I it's think it's beautiful, and the sound yeah. design in that scene is incredible. I like the oh. sound design in Pulse, like in general. Oh, it's amazing! The, the ambient music, where you can't tell whether it's the soundtrack or the or the environment. It's just, oh my god, it's so and there's just this one like this is like this one vocalist just going nuts. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> 
over the top. <laughs> like once once that lady starts going nuts, you know you're in trouble. So I feel like if you haven't been convinced by this preamble that these movies are for you, um, I don't know what to tell what you. you they might here? not be. They might not be for you. It's okay if they are not. If you're not feeling like feeling very very sad, very very lonely. Um, skip them (laughs) but uh if you're in for a real real good scare um and something very interesting about technology and Mm. connection human connection give them a watch okay so we are now moving on to the spoiler rich section of our podcast so that Bren and I can each give our deep cut, our deep dive, our official pitch for why these horror films should be paired together, uh, reward being watched Like together. a fine wine and a cheese. Or like two wines. Or like, pe- like two wines, like peanut butter and jelly, or peanut butter and peanut butter if you don't like jelly. Yeah, peanut butter and bread, uh, wine and then beer. Is it always a good thing? Oh, pairing? okay. Uh, always. That, that's up for debate, but okay. Well, I think that if um, it's things that are good after one <laughs> another, one after the other, or together. I don't know. Wine. One sip of wine, and then another sip of wine. <laughs> they Perfect. Go, they go together like one sip of wine and another sip of wine. That is exactly right. Put that on a t-shirt. Um, <laughs> what is your What is your take, Paul, on these two films? Oh, Bren, let me let me get my. Let me get my uh, piece of paper up here. So, I don't know if I'm completely convinced by my pitch. I kind of psyched myself out. Dear listener, you may be able to tell this already, but Bren and I tend to overthink things. Um, Well, that's the point of the show. Yeah, no, it (laughs) is. It is. The whole point, the reason you're listening to this is because you don't, you want someone to say something dubiously true. Right, so that's you and uh, that's, watch them argue about it. That's apparently, for better or for worse, what I do compulsively. But the more I thought about my pitch, uh, okay, well, I will do it. Okay, here we go. Just tell me what it is. And Here's then we'll my fight. pitch. Okay. So my pitch, Brent, is that both Pulse and Lake Mungo are films that articulate fears about the uncontainability of narrative. So by this, I mean oh. that they both confront a simple fact, which is that we cannot control our own narrative timeline with the traces we leave behind in the world. We don't own the stories told about us. They extend beyond us. They are not accountable to us. And sometimes they even wish us harm. Now, I have sp- I have specific examples uh, of how I would back this up with, like, Mungo and Pulse. Okay. Do you want me to do those now? Or? No, no, no. Okay. Because I do not. I want to tell you my pitch. Okay. And I have a lot of thoughts about your pitch. I can totally see both why it is true and also... Why I'm going to tell you it's not true. But (laughs) my take, here's my take, is which is much more maybe like less thematic and perhaps more material than yours, which is that these are both films about seeing others, not yourself, others, Mm -hmm. like literally Mm -hmm. physically the mechanical phenomenon of seeing and that act of mediated looking being paradoxically maybe a source of isolation or separation. Or as, as, you know, a filmic, in a filmic way, a cut. Yeah. Like looking and seeing others in a mediated way being being a breakage point, a cut, a slice. And I agree with your take, Bren, but I feel like your take undergirds my take and Ooh, pr- proves okay. its worth. Okay, okay, why? 
Well, uh, if we want to extend the the category of storytelling to include looking, right? And media. I don't know looking. if like so for me it's not necessarily about the the narrative or the story that's developed by looking. It's more like literally about about looking. So one of the things I did not watch the cleaned up special digitally remastered version of Pulse on Amazon. <laughs> I, I think it's um, just I think it's just the official <laughs> release. I, <laughs> and like so and so much of my interpretation of this film has to do with like the fact that s- the ghost images are like super freaking hard to make out. Yeah. Like you yeah. like there's images within images and they're all on these like shitty old chunky screens of mm-hmm. these computers and the characters are like leaning way the fuck in to try to see what the ghost is and then you as the viewer like the way that you were describing your your viewing experience of pulse having to like physically be so close to the screen to figure out what was going on i mean that's so much of what the ghost stuff in that film is about like not not quite being able to make something out clearly and then when you do it's too late um, mm-hmm. Or like the whole thing where there's that one ghost that's trying to take off take the, the mask, bag off it, off it's head, right? Yeah. And then the character—is it a mask? Is it a bag? I don't know. I can't really see it. Um, but the, that one character keeps like trying to get away from the image before the the face of the person is revealed. And the fact that at the end the face is revealed and it's like nobody we've ever seen before. It's just like yeah, some it's just dude. some random dude right right so like he has no idea who that is and he has no idea who it is so like the whole and that's why i get so interested in that other scene in pulse where she is being observed by the ghost and she tries to hug it that's also one of my favorite scenes yeah. i think it's so so good the and it gets it's it so weird see, too like, it's so weird it's so weird and it's acted so weird and the script is like silent right i'm not alone it's so good and so that's the moment where like it it can see her it's unclear whether she can see it we as the viewer can only see from its perspective so Mm -hmm. we can see her but and she gets close to us like when she hugs the ghost it looks like she's hugging you the viewer in this like super weirdly intimate way and then immediately afterwards, she is gone from the text, right? Like, that's her end. That's the end of her. And then we get our characters that are, like, catapulted into this completely personless world mm-hmm. where there's nobody. And it's unclear whether that's, like, the real world because everyone's been sucked into the website or whether they've died and this is the afterlife of loneliness that they've been talking about the whole time. And so it's more, it's like, once you have seen the ghost in the Forbidden Room it's over for you. And it's like about going into a place, seeing something and, and that being mediated. And the same goes for like Mungo, right? So seeing, Mm -hmm. Oh, this is the biggest spoiler. So if you stayed, if you stayed, leave (laughs) now, listener, dude, Um, leave. (laughs) Unless you've seen it already. Unless you've seen it, unless you've seen it. Unless you just Um, don't watch films and this is just background. Yeah. Yeah. I respect. That's valid whatever you can engage with this media however you desire mm-hmm. uh but the um the the seeing so alice sees her own corpse right and gets that on film not film gets it on her video phone right right and so well, we, that we moment it and, we, and we that's how we see it 
Yeah. That's how we see it. We see it through this recording. And it's like this really grainy, scary, horrifying image of her own corpse that we've already seen, like a really clear image of earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. Right? So that connection, like not only is it a, like a deeply frightening image to see, but the connection is already made with like what reality is or like what you've seen, you know, before in the film. And then the second that she sees it, she feels isolated from the rest of her life. Like she starts acting weird. She sees the medium. She starts like, you know, all of this stuff um, having to do with like feeling isolated and and everyone around her catching these images, like after her death, her family catching these images of her and realize images in terms of narrative, but also in terms of visibly her ghost in pictures and stuff. Mm. Um, Like, they realized through seeing her in this way that they didn't know her and that they have never been more separated from her. And that even in trying to grow closer to her after her death, they are in fact growing farther and farther away from the daughter that they thought they had. So there's an alienation um, that happens on both levels. Yes. With, with yes. The seeing. She sees it and becomes alienated from her living life, uh, like the living world. And mm-hmm. when her family finally see it, they become alienated from their memory of who right. they thought she and was. And so, so, so much of the conflict in that film has to do with exhuming her body so that the mother can get closure by seeing it. And so the father, right, is mm-hmm. like, oh, I've seen the body. I know she's dead. I'm not convinced by any of this ghost shit. And then the mom is like, no, I need to see that she's really dead. Right? And so seeing, yeah. like, being able to, to physically see, right, and having that seeing be mediated or not by not only the physical media right like the film or i mean the video it's not i keep saying film the video um or you know the photography or whatever but also like by the narratives that you have about the people that you love like those are also ways that mediate your seeing of who they are um and that sort of changes your relationship to the way that you see them because you know you see her differently once you know that she's had like this weird relationship with the neighbors and you know that you learn that she has the weird relationship with the neighbors because in another scene that keeps giving me chills you see the neighbor in one of the video footages of the ghost and and it all goes back to that the video of her where she captures an image of her dead self Uh rushing to initially coming towards her and then rushing Rushing. towards her at the end it's so scary it's just it's just the scariest thing um, but the implication for me was always that these things that she's doing in the final months of her life, she is doing because she is alienated, because of what she's seen, because she's seen yes. her own death, and she's trying to to feel something. Yeah. Uh, or to recapture something, to make some sense of her life. And, and so uh, a threesome with the adult neighbors is like one right. r- route to that. But that's also... But also the film does not, like, that is a a reading. That is a a reading. That That is totally subtext. And I'm not saying it's a wrong reading, but I do want to say, like, the text leaves it so ambiguous. Like, each time I watch it, I'm like, oh my gosh, she was taken advantage of. Okay, no, she was, it was consensual. Okay, if it was consensual, why are they running away? It's still statutory rape There's, like, all of these layers to it. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you definitely want to ra- run away. Anyway, I don't but, know what the age of um, consent is in Australia, but I think we can. Like, it is, it is, it is in effect statutory rape. I think the film wants us to wants us to yeah, do no, it that way. You should not have sex with a minor no, <laughs> neighbor people. Um, but like all of these things, it it 
there there is an ambiguity that contributes to this idea that we just don't know a damn thing about Alice. We just don't know anything about her. So remind me, Brian, that your pitch is that these are films about looking and the ways in which looking in a particular mediated way um, traps or isolates you or changes things irrevocably. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I changed the word a little bit. Okay. No, that's perfect. But so yours, though, is, is about, like narratives so would you say that like those kinds of narratives are like do those narratives have to do with seeing or looking in the same way that i'm sort of talking about or are they more like the mediation um thematically i do think that my pitch combines both a little bit of what you're saying uh with a little bit what i'm saying the the mediatory aspects are really are really important i'm also interested in irrevocable change being trapped so in the case of lake mungo what I mean by her, the notion that our stories and our narrative timelines can extend beyond us and not accountable to us mean as harm, right? In the case of Alice Palmer, the central conceit, right, is that she sees her death before it has happened. And that yes. she's haunted by the knowledge of her future death. And perhaps even more terrifyingly, or certainly it's more sad, is the way that she also appears to be haunted by a knowledge of her continued ghostly presence in the house after her family leaves. Because we see those tapes at the end where she's talking to the, under um, hypnotism, to the psychic, and she is having this moment when her mother thinks she's at peace and she's left and is leaving the house for good and they're moving away and she is still there and she knows that she's still there and she's always going to be there. So it seems to be implied that she's trapped by a knowledge of her death and of her future ghostly presence from the moment that she sees that image and essentially everything changes from then on but it's like this fear that I mean, you know, in, in in reality, right, in the everyday, sure. if we see an image that looks like our dead self, maybe we don't think too much of it, right? I mean, it depends on who you are. Yeah, or like, I feel like I would not know what it was. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Or, or maybe you tell somebody, but she doesn't. She buries yeah. her phone in like this ritual act mm-hmm. of, of, um, of, of saying goodbye to the world. It's like a pre-funeral. Right. And it's then a pre-funeral she's, for herself. And she's trapped in this waking death. She, she searches out a psychic and all she gets is more knowledge of her waking death and the fact that she's going to be a ghost in this house and that she's already a ghost in this house. And mm-hmm. then on... And this gets to the text thing. There's another level after that where her being trapped in the house is echoed by the fact that her pain is also narrativized by the movie, by this mockumentary, mm. right? And so she's also mm-hmm. trapped in the documentary. She's like, there's, there's a direct corollary, corollary between the way that she is trapped in the house and her pain is residing there indefinitely against her will. 
and the mm-hmm. pain is also being relived and perpetuated infinitely in the the text that we're watching against her will. So in both senses, her an awareness of well, her... how do we know it's against her will? Like, how do we know she doesn't? So okay, for me, I think my first level of resistance to your pitch is not so much a. It's like maybe a little uh, <laughs> uh, feelings based, but for me, mm-hmm. this is so much not a movie about Alice. This is a movie about Alice's family and her brother and her mother. And this is a movie about how they are dealing with grief and like the visual techniques they employ to deal with that grief. And I feel like the text of the film makes Alice's character just incredibly transparent. We don't know what she was thinking. We don't know what she was feeling. All we know is like things that she did and things that she saw. Um, and we don't know how she was feeling about them or why. That fits with my point, right? Which is that you, no one. Will I don't know let, if no it one, does because, like, your point. No one will ever be able to. <laughs> Go ahead. No, there will never. Be, you can't accurately narrate your life, but neither can anybody else. And the best that you can hope for, sure. if this is something that you want, is is a fictionalization of your life, which is essentially an imposition. I wouldn't have gone down this route if she, if I read it very much as her being trapped at the end. And, really? And yeah. But would, so there's that final scene. Because you think the image of the ghost is her. So those images, uh, so that's, that's actually... The real com- ones, not the ones that the brother made. Well, so the, so the real, not real distinction is actually something I want to get back to because I am, the more, okay, I, totally. go, the more I go around that particular bush... Uh, the more confused I get or the more uncertain I get. um, Which I think is just the nature of the beast here. But what I mean is that there's a level at which the, 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 the text seems to be telling us it chooses at the end. We've got this Mm -hmm. kind of subplot of the, the mother uh, going into hypnosis and being aware of her daughter in the house being sad. And then they find the phone, they dig up the evidence of what was making her sad, and then her mother goes under hypnosis, and she goes into the bedroom where she's been seeing Alice in these visions, and Alice is at peace, and she's gone. And then we are given the other tape of Alice before she died with Ray Kennedy, having the the mirror image of that, where she is trapped in the house, sees her mother come in, she's still there, and her mother can't see her. And so I absolutely, because of because of that, I absolutely read Alice as being trapped. Yeah. Totally. Gosh, I also got to add, like, that scene where the mother describes seeing her the first time is very chilling. I oh, find that yeah. pretty creepy. And the one where the dad it's describes really his first sighting of her. Oh, my God. And I think oh, the- it's so good. Like, they really get me. Yeah, it's really good. I think that in the first in the first description of the mother, isn't she like she's wet, right? She's from she's she's fresh from yeah. the dam, right? Yeah, because she drowned. Yeah, she drowns. Yeah. Oh, you... it's so scary. <laughs> spoiler: she, she drowns. Yes, yeah, spoiler. That's no, that's Maybe not a spoiler. That that's the premise. The... Yeah. yeah, she. Well, we did say she's dead. Um, anyway, so for me, okay, the medium thing, like definitely she's there, but the thing for me is not trappedness it's not being perceived it's like not being seen right her mother can't see her but she's there whereas in all of the other instances she can be seen well no what i'm saying is the brother inserts images of her artificially Mm -hmm. right so she is seen but she's like that's not her 
right? So yeah, I think this yeah, is yeah. instructing us to be really skeptical of any image that we see of her. And it feels to me a lot like the ghost, right? Or whatever we see in the final images that the text, you know, tells us are, are really her. Like, really, that's her. That's the ghost. Um, we're being instructed to be skeptical of the idea that that's her. Yeah, Right? Like, the family seems to be... I'm not saying they're not real, quote-unquote real. Um, I think it it could be, like, you know, part of the narrative of the farce, like, the farce that this is a real documentary asks us to be skeptical of what's real already, so it's like maybe this is being added in. Obviously, these images are constructed digitally, (laughs) like, these aren't real photos. Um, I don't know, maybe they are. But um, the... I, I feel like if if we're asked to read anything into this, it's like, Alice is gone. We cannot know anything about Alice. She is dead, right? The images that we see of her, the video footage that we see of her, that is nothing but an image. And every time we see it, we get farther from her. And so when the family is like, we're done, we're leaving, we're at peace, we perhaps ought to be skeptical of the fact that they are done, that they are at peace, that her, that their grief about her no longer exists in their home. They move away, right? Which feels a lot like, you know, it doesn't feel like closure. That feels more like leaving, like escaping, mm. perhaps. And those images of her like looking out the window at the very end makes it feel like what they're leaving behind is not her, but their their grief. Or what maybe perhaps their memory of her. And so maybe what I have like I don't I'm this is obviously me being not just pedantic, but also like uh needlessly contrarian. But <laughs> if I have a bone to pick with your pitch, it's like the way that you use the pronoun you. Because in this film, it's not about Al it, for me, it's a it's not about Alice as a character. It's about Alice as like a visual object that you can look at. Is the is it not a film therefore which asks interesting questions about the archive? And the ways in which no, no, it, it totally ad- ad- objectifies does. and reduces all of us. Like we're not there. You're absolutely right. Like we're not there. It's just pictures, right? But like, mm-hmm. but but that doesn't change the way that the those artifacts operate in the archive. And as far as I'm concerned, Certainly. if it if it's a film about the archive, then it's also a film about narrative. It just is. Oh. Okay, yeah, no, I'm convinced by that. That totally makes sense to me. I think, like, maybe my misreading of your pitch had to had a lot to do with, like, Alice intentionally constructing an archive, which I don't no, think No, 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 I don't think that doing. at all. No, no, I think that okay, she, great, if, great, anything, great, great. if anything, she's haunted by the prospect of an archive which is completely unfeeling to Com- her. Out of, out of her control. That's yeah, what I mean. That's, like that's exactly, that's And not, I mean. only, yeah. not only unfeeling to her, but also, like, contributed to by people who aren't her, like her brother adding images of her artificially to these, to these photos and to this video. And that's now part of her archive, even though that's obviously not, you know, that's not her. She, she captures the first glimpse of that. Right. Yeah. They interpret, um, they interpret the, the burying of the phone as this act of, uh, saying goodbye to the world. But I mean, you could just as easily interpret it as (laughs) an act. It could be fear. Yeah. She's trying to keep the archive from them. Yeah, 
Totally. Ooh, ooh, this is good. I really like your reading. Well, okay. So my second bone to pick is I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea what your pitch has to do with Pulse. I just well, do not, I don't get it. You gave, me, you gave me, you've given me the language to more effectively deliver my pitch. So thank you, Brent. Let's just, <laughs> let's just keep, let's keep going with the archive thing, right? Okay, so this mysterious okay. browser virus launches the user of the computer of the web browser service, uh, service into a nightmare simulacrum of modern digital culture where they see this endlessly repeating cycle of cameras and images and ghostly figures, mm-hmm. right? So there are real people in the image who become ghosts, but were always kind of ghosts to begin with. And sure. they, in turn, are looking at others while unaware of being seen and having eyes upon them. So there's this cycle of seeing and mm. being watched, which can't be escaped and leaves you both vulnerable and alone. And I think that that is, if we think about the trace that we all leave behind within... Um, within the internet and within the visual the, the the visuals of the internet particularly webcams whatever whatever i think there's a way in which this this film particularly at this early stage when it doesn't even really seem to understand how the internet works and viewers sure as viewers sure as hell didn't but there is a fear of the archive transcending the individual trapping them and oh, proliferating yeah. them in a way that cannot be controlled and that in itself is also a form of narrative which is detached from you or that someone can take and construct a narrative out of so there's my that is like so freakily prophetic right about the way that the internet works now Right, like the, it's every little micro movement that you make is tracked and and not not just tracked and archived, but like sold um, and yeah. used to infect other people, like and to build aggregate data, which seems to be what's going on at the end when like more and more people keep getting like touched and sucked in and touched and sucked in, yeah. um, and then the way that people like the way that people who have been into the forbidden room get. They, the way they die and become, was well, ah, die in big scare quotes, um, and become they part turn to of dust, the wall. They do. Yeah. They, they become stains. They become stains. On the that, physical environment. They become stains that disintegrate and rematerialized, uh, mm-hmm. rematerialize at, at different moments. Gosh, it's such an effective, like, visual. Oh my gosh, they're so freaky. I hate those stains. I hate them so much. It makes me think of dark film. water. Well, they, the uh, stains are so I, the stains are so interesting because they fit an overall color scheme of uh, of dirtiness, right? Mm-hmm. There's like this Grime. everything has this dirty yellow filter, yeah, and that fits the the griminess of the walls. And mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a film that like it's not about it's it's both about the future and a future that's terrifying, but it's also kind of seemingly terrified by like the industrial present even the way the buildings are filmed uh, the, that first yeah. that 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 apartment block that the first friend hangs himself in is just right. it's probably just an apartment block right if you looked at it from far away it would probably be fine but the way it's filmed it's filmed super close up especially the stairwell so it seems like all-encompassing and dirty and kind mm-hmm. of everywhere and um and is is yep. is completely terrifying, and it's it's interesting, again because the film no one really needs to understand how the internet works to kind of be scared by the film. In fact, it's probably scarier if you don't. So there's there's a way in which the the internet is kind of linked <laughs> to like building sites, right? Do you remember that? Like yeah, GeoCities. I don't remember what GeoCities is. 
GeoCities, well, never mind, it's irrelevant, but okay. it's like, yeah, think of, think, like, also the metaphorization of the internet as, and, like, sites, websites as, like, place, like, site as in place, page as in, like, you know, thing that you read, and then surfing as a thing that you do in physical space, like, over, you know, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of things you could say about the, the, the metaphors um, that we use to talk about the internet, but a lot of it has to do with, like, entering, exiting, mm-hmm. um, you know, rooms, chat rooms, spaces, you know, places. And that's um, all incredibly literalized here, right? Like the Oh, totally. The, the forbidden room. The forbidden room occurs for the first time in a construction site because someone just has an idea to bring ghosts in from another realm, borrows some tape, <laughs> tapes out the room, makes the room, the ghosts come, the site is knocked down, and some internet wires, like, get into it. And all of a sudden, we have the virus, and we're kind of we're shown this in a, in a weird moment of um, uh, exposition, like visual exposition. And I don't even. And know it's if- easy to miss, man. It's so easy. Like my first watch of this, I had no idea what that meant, and then I just never connected the dots. I was like, "Oh, a building. Yeah, oh, a tape." <laughs> and it's kind of it's kind of irrelevant, right? Like it doesn't actually yeah. clarify anything. It doesn't matter who that was or why they did it or whatever. It's more like, how does it spread? Who is making more rooms? And like, why, you know, how is it possible to avoid getting sucked into this weird ghostly circle? Those questions uh, are not answered either. No, no. But <laughs> they're the more important, interesting ones. Um, but yeah, I think, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty convinced by that. Maybe what I'm questioning now is like the word narrative. Because it seems like what we don't have about any of the images of the ghost that we see on the website are like stories about who they are or are you working with a more expansive uh, use of the word narrative perhaps but you know what i'm willing to i'm willing just to not to not go there right now and not to, and not to poke <laughs> that bear and just to just to stick with archive because i sure. think that archive implies like the build the potential building building blocks that mm-hmm. can be can be used or rearranged maybe they Certainly. maybe they make narrative or maybe they're just there's something else um, well, this is interesting also because I think the way, like, maybe if we want to stick with narrative, we can sort of scope outwards into the structure of the film itself and think about the way that the two, like, completely untouching stories of these two characters that just don't meet until the very, very end. And then once they do meet, it's like nothing happens. <laughs> like, just absolutely fucking nothing happens well, to the point where his, they're like, she becomes his best friend ever. I think she says that. Like, I forgot about that part. At the final scene, she's like, I found happiness here with my, I forget the exact quote, but it's like, here with my closest ever friend. And it's just his stain in the corner. Yep, his stain is in the corner. Cue country oh music. Right? That, and then like the fact that it's circular, right? Because the first shot of the film is her on the boat. Yeah, they didn't need the boat. I like the bow. I like the bow. It tells me that they're not only in search of like something. They didn't just give up. They're like searching. They're moving through space. And then it also I, underlines this feeling of isolation, like being totally alone on the sea, you know, yeah. and with yeah. nobody around you and not knowing if it's limited to your country. But then also there's that U.S. plane that crashes and we don't know <laughs> if that's like real or if they are already in the afterlife or what like this feeling of being adrift you know i like the i like the boat um and i also like how it starts on the boat and it's like this this landscape pun intended that you don't see for the rest of the film until the very very end 
Like, mm-hmm. you start with her on the boat, and then you're like, ooh, how does she get there? And, like, the film is going to promise to tell you how she got on the boat, but then it's just like, it does not even matter. It's, <laughs> like, it doesn't matter Yeah, that it, she's do- on it the doesn't boat. matter at all. Like, again, when last week we were doing body snatches, and it kind of does matter, the framing device there, right? Yes. It's, it's like, relevant. Yeah. You want to know why he got there. But now it's just like, how did she get to the boat? Well, she got on another boat and found this boat. <laughs> <laughs> yep it's just like it's completely irrelevant but that like that storytelling right that desire for the the narrative to be to be closed and to make sense is totally thwarted by as uh many of the imdb um discontents may indicate it just doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense at all and it's just like an aggregate it's like a mountain of like footage maybe that's why it's so long oh uh, yeah like, yeah there's but again, just I... footage and footage and footage to go back to to the the question of kind of media and technology though i think that the the fact that i was thinking a lot about this the the fact that the parts just don't connect up properly um i do think really speaks to the fact that the the it's again it's dealing with new technology and it's and i keep on saying that you don't need to understand how the internet works to it and it's more scary if you don't but i still don't Brent, I don't understand how any of this shit works. I mean, I did, like, <laughs> technology might as well just be magic to me. Like, people tell me it's ones and zeros. I have no idea what that means. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a humanities guy. So, I like, so I still, <laughs> so it's like, it's a film about the internet made by probably humanities majors or, like, at least a film major. And it, it doesn't matter that this disembodied camera that she dances with doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't matter. No, that... it does because that's that's the film. That's it, it the doesn't, film. It doesn't. She's yeah. dancing with the the film. But the film is not. It's not that. It's like disembodied, and it's. Yes, because we're watching it. We are the body. The viewer is the body. You yeah. can't see the viewer in the scene. Yeah, but is that true? Is I know. I I get that. It's a ghost. The viewer is the ghost. Like, we are the ghost that haunts the archive. But are all the other viewers... The watcher. Are all the other viewers the ghost that also haunts the archive? Or is it just us? What do you mean, other viewers? No, just you and me, Paul. We're the only ones that this film was made for. (laughs) No, I mean, in the film, there's a bunch of people watching those... Yeah. Watching from the perspective of... of Everyone haunts each other. Like, that's what that one... I'm I'm saying this as if I've known this all along, but I just came to the realization, which is why I'm talking so loudly and enthusiastically. Okay. But um, it's like, what if... What if... What if the point of that... Like, all of the people watching each other and this whole rumination about ghosts, loneliness... And the afterlife being not being able to be with anybody and just like this sort of cycle of depression is because the only thing that you can do is like watch and you just watch other people and haunt them and they haunt you and they're watching. And that's that's what the archive is. And that's what the afterlife is, because the only thing that persists and this is where we can go back to like Mungo. The only thing that persists after your death. Sorry. Is that what human interaction is as well? Just watching. Ah. Watching and haunting. We're gonna we're gonna get systems theory bound if we're not. But yeah, so maybe that's you know maybe that's our read of this like seeing this thing about seeing this thing about narrative this thing about like being out of control of your archive, and you know calling it your archive is even a stretch. Just like mm-hmm. the things mm-hmm. that are visually, textually, medially generated by you and about you are spectral. Sure. Period. 
Yeah. Period. Done. Okay, I think cool. we've I think we've done it. Done. I think. I think we did it. We figured it out. <laughs> I think we're. I think if we're this good. Is, if we yeah, if this is a podcast about anything, it's about how just talking about things just is good. It's gonna get you there. It's gonna get you somewhere. It's gonna get you there. And then you'll go you just to have sleep to sit down and for like an hour. You'll do it again. And you'll get somewhere else. Yeah, that's yeah. So anyway, I think yeah, I think we did it. That's I think a pretty good argument for why these two films inform each other and um, and are are good to watch together. I love how you just sum it up like like it's uh it's very concise. That that's very concise. And that that is that, that podcast that you just listened to. You should listen to them together. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. If we can maybe end by going back to the basics. I wonder if there's, I mean, are there any the kind of visual visual tics that align these films for you? Do you want to say anything more scary, about squinting, Scary, Bren? grainy images. Yeah. yeah, dude, like scary, grainy images. The first time I watched all of these films was like on a much smaller screen than I watched them on this time. And even then, like the, the urge to get really close to the screen, like to physically stand up and walk towards my TV, but mm-hmm. then also to like run into the other room and hide. Hell away, yeah. It's so scary. Like you just don't want to be that close to the thing that you're looking at. And I think like that's maybe one of the reasons why these had to be horror films. Like if they were going to make this argument, <laughs> that we're just saying that they're making I don't know um, if they're gonna like have this sort of thematic resonance they need to be scary and I think that's you know it wouldn't have worked in any other genre and I think these are also fun genre benders because they're not super interested in you know formulaic whatever whatever you want to say about the horror genre and it's and it's delightful little formulas um, yeah. these films are just not interested um, and I think but at the same time, this feeling of disquiet um, is really important to them. Now that we can, maybe we should end um, with just going back to those two those two most terrifying mm-hmm. scenes because I think they're really good examples uh, of the ways in which on a, on a kind of a micro level, they are not interested in, they're kind of making their own script for, for yeah. fear. I love the concept of someone listening to this and being like, what two scenes are they talking about? So, to be specific, it's the one where the lady walks towards the guy in the Forbidden Room. The first time that anyone goes into the Forbidden Room. Yes. The first, yeah, and there's, like, the lady, like, in the, in, she's walking towards him, she's got these weird disjointed movements, it's dark, and then there's, the audio is, like, doing this crazy, like, howling Going thing. crazy. And um, she walks towards him for, like, this scene must last, it lasts a couple, a couple time. minutes. And it seems, it seems like forever. And there's this slow realization that she's in the back of the room and mm-hmm. that he is, and that she is by the door. So he is trapped. Yeah. And, and you don't see her at first, too. Like, no. you look at the scene and it takes you a couple of seconds to be like, oh shit, those are legs. Oh my God, that's a person. And then she just, and then she just walks. And we don't ever end up seeing, we don't learn any more about her as mm-hmm. she walks towards him. There isn't a jump scare. He, she just, she just keeps going. She just comes. Yeah. And, and it is, and it doesn't sound like it should be scary, but it, 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 it is. It, it, it really is. You just need to, <laughs> you just trust. need to watch it. And then it does some really interesting things with perspective where he hides behind the table and we can't see her for a while. And then he mm-hmm. looks back over and there she is, Brent. She's still there. She's still there. And you think that it's gearing up towards a jump scare, but it's just not, and that's worse. Yeah, it's so much worse. And then there's a similar trick that is 
that is pulled in the one like so the the lake mungo scene we're talking about and i think this is probably more obvious obvious yeah. is when the one she, where she sees her she's horse. at the titular lake mungo and um she goes off by herself with her nokia 6600 or whatever it is <laughs> and she is filming her her nighttime walk because she's a teenager and um She's and you see, like the, the 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 screenshot that was going around on Twitter was literally just like, like right when you get to sort of make out that there's a figure in the distance, like that was the screenshot that was being shared around, and everyone was like, "This is the scariest thing I've ever seen." Just like thinking about this scene gives me shivers, and it's literally like all I have to do is see like the vague white outline of the head and shoulders, and I'm just like, "No, no." It like really freaks me out. But again, it's not um, a jump scare. It's gradual. It's a gradual yeah, realization. Yeah, it's very gradual. And it's a it's a realization. She gets closer and she gets closer. And because and this goes back to something Brent was saying, because of the point the technology is at, it, the the picture really could be anything. So you yeah, there's kind of a level at which like a you log. it could be a rock. Right, and you have to keep on going back through that process of doubting and then realizing all over again. So the mm-hmm. realization is kind of recurring and cyclical mm-hmm. and she gets closer and it gets closer and you have that moment again and again and again and it's so prolonged. And then even when the, the bloated, horrible, terrifying face, pixelated face, is right up in the screen, there's still a level at which it doesn't look You're quite like... like what it. is that? You're like, I've seen it, but I don't know what it is. And then they show you the actual photo of her corpse, and you're like, oh my god. Yeah. So and then it's... it goes back... And, I think it goes back and forth, like, once. And that's when I always... I have to look away. It's just horrible. It's horrible to look at. Yeah, but it's so gradual. It's such a gradual release. And it's such yeah. a terrifying... So, fun fact, fun story about this film. My, my partner is not uh, a horror film person. <laughs> Mine and, either. That's why we had to start this podcast. Yeah, but <laughs> so talk about it with somebody. Brent was hanging out at our place, and um, this is one of the films we watched. And then Brent went home, and um, my my partner kind of was like, "So what was that film about?" And I described it to her. Mm-hmm. I just described the concept to her, and the next day she was like, "I was up all night." Why did, oh, why did you have to describe Emma. it to me? Because it was just like just just the idea mm. was was scary, and it really is a scary idea. It really is. It really is a scary idea, and that's why they had to be horror films. This couldn't happen in any other genre. The haunting of the anyway. archive, haunted by the archive, the haunting in the archive. Good episode title. No, we can't say that in the episode title. It'll give it away. No, but this can't. was a realization we came to through talking to each other. So it was, and that's why you know you need a book club. You can't just read a book. <laughs> the end. <laughs> <laughs> the end. So on that note, um, this has been really fun, Bren. I yeah. look forward to doing this next week. Hopefully, we have a bunch of pairings lined up for all of you. Uh, that we're really excited to get through. Maybe something a little bit more fun next week, not so existentially terrifying and (laughs) all-consuming. Good, beautiful. Looking forward to it, and I cannot wait. Indeed, likewise. This has been Double Features. I'm Paul. I am Bren. Goodbye. Double Features is written, recorded, and edited by Bren Ram and Paul Birch. Artwork is by Bren Ram, and our theme music is The Depths by Lost Soul. For artist information, 
see the podcast description and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. Thank you.